This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It was a week chock full of big tech earnings and also a continued Chinese crackdown on its technology and education sectors that unleashed shockwaves across global markets, erasing at one point more than $750 billion in value from U.S.-listed Chinese stocks over the course, Tim, of just five months. Yeah, you mentioned a huge week of earnings. On the earnings front, Carol, Tesla beating, and that included its first $1 billion quarter of net income. And yet Elon Musk's comments on chip supplies and production hurdles bummed out investors. One investor who's owned Tesla shares and its cars weighs in. He's really well known to our audience. We're talking about Ross Gerber. He's always a fun and engaging uh, conversation. We're also going to talk about what's going on in the Amazon rainforest and why it's a problem for us all. I've got to say, this story is a dark one. It's entitled Last Days of the Rainforest, and both you and I um, were really upset about it. Yeah, it's one of those stories that you read and you think to yourself, what could I be doing to actually help this situation? Because it's a global story. It affects all of us, even though it's based in the Amazon. Exactly. And what's interesting is, you know, we talk about climate change, the importance of companies, institutions, governments. This is the Brazilian government, though, making it possible for more deforestation to happen. You know, one point that I found really interesting and to be honest, deeply troubling, Carol. Mm. I, t- I tweeted about this. Some scientists are suggesting that the Amazon is, is now close to a tipping point at which it will become a savanna rather than a rainforest. So what that means is it's going to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere instead of pulling them down. And these so-called flying rivers, these are bands of moisture in the air that bring rainfall to the continent. Those are going to dry up as many as 10,000 species may be at risk of dying off. It's awful. Yeah, it's terrible. Listen, we're going to hear more from the reporter a little bit later on, Jessica Bryce. She's going to join us. But this is really a problem for us all. We're also going to hear from Harvey Mason Jr., the CEO of the Recording Academy. He's going to talk about a new tune and tone for the Academy. They've had their own problems, Tim. We know the Grammys, which has come under some criticism uh, in terms of diversity, inclusion. So we're going to find out what he's up to. All of that to come. And we begin, though, with a look at this week's issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, the cover story. We're going to talk a lot about this later on. It's all about Beijing sweeping crackdowns on its tech and education sectors and also the Chinese media and regulators trying to walk it back a bit to calm investor concerns. This cover could not be timed better (laughs) for what we've seen in the Chinese markets over the last couple of weeks. The cover itself, move fast and obey the party. This was one of our main market stories this week. How many times did we live on air through our market closes, talk about what was going on with Chinese companies listed here in the U.S., ADRs that sold off, then they bounced back because of the oversight, increased government oversight when it comes to Chinese big tech. And also there are private education companies. And then it was interesting that all of a sudden they started to walk it back a little bit because I think they got a little bit nervous about the international investment community maybe pulling back and looking at China differently from an investment perspective. Yeah, we did just see also uh, some of those concerns 
concerns, a little bit of contagion sweep into U.S. markets and, and global yeah. markets as well. Uh, and I think there are some really interesting questions raised in the piece about what it means for American tech companies and, and what U.S. regulators and U.S. investors can learn from the way that Chinese regulators are cracking down on these companies. What does it mean in the evolution of mega cap tech companies right. and how they're treated here in the U.S.? And this story, right, China's maybe going in their own direction, setting up their own new code. Speaking of new codes, uh, we are still trying to figure out how the heck do we get back to work. Companies, hey, we're here. <laughs> we are here. We've been here for months uh, during the pandemic. What's interesting is we were all looking at companies increasingly saying, hey, workers, Fall is coming. We want you back. You're going to be back. And then all of a sudden, we started to see, speaking of walking back things, companies, whether it's Google, whether it's Apple, whether it's Twitter, walking back expectations for when they want their workers back in the office. I think there are a lot more questions right mm -hmm. now than there are answers about what a distributed workforce looks like, what it means for people to be back in the office, when they'll be back in the office, who they're going to be around. Uh, one of the most sought after management jobs right now, there's an article about this in the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week. It's about people who are leading large, far-flung teams through uncharted waters. It's the remote work czar, and it's potentially a shortcut to the C-suite for rising professionals. Right. And as our reporter writes about it, it's not a job you could have predicted 16 months ago, but here we are. And of course, the reason we're talking about this and companies walking back their expectations for opening up their offices is because of the rise of COVID cases because of the Delta variant. We've seen it in the hotspots around the world, and we're seeing it in hotspots around the United States as well. I saw a tweet from one of our colleagues. She wrote on Twitter, it was nice for that little two-week period when we thought the pandemic was behind us. <sighs> and it certainly feels like in recent weeks, it hasn't been. And that's because of the rise of the Delta variant, the changes in CDC guidance that we got earlier this week. And as you just mentioned, the way that companies are responding. Sorry if you're really down and depressed. Don't go anywhere because we have some uplifting things we're going to cover as well. People who are disrupting our world. Check out the magazine because in this week's issue, in the pursuit section, is some fun things to maybe bring a smile to your face, including, can I get drunk on this? Uh, yeah, a heap of new alcohol-infused ice creams are cooling down summer just in time for August. We're talking about boozy ice creams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so what's really wonderful is R.K. Crater, who is our our food editor here at Bloomberg Pursuits, basically giving you some um, recipes to make some really cool boozy drinks, uh, ice cream included. Yeah, ice cream soda. We can also make an ice cream sandwich, milkshake, and of course, the whiskey vanilla ice cream. We also take a look at some other things in Pursuit, talking about the travel agent being back. Uncertainties in the friendly skies is forcing vacation planners to rethink the value of a profession long thought departed. How many times? You want to go on a trip? You just book it on an app. And that's how we've been doing it. But because of the pandemic, because of other situations, it's trickier. And so maybe we need a travel agent again. All that and more in the current edition of Bloomberg Business Week. And that new issue, it is on newsstands, online and on the Bloomberg. We're going to cover some of the stories over the next couple of hours, but be sure to pick up the magazine as well. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Tesla beats, Elon tweets. Well, Tim, that's always a given. <laughs> and one Tesla shareholder weighs in on the tech company that makes EVs. At least that's what he calls it. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
Among the big earnings this week, Tesla, even with second quarter profit and sales exceeding estimates, Tim, it was CEO Elon Musk's cautionary hints from the investor call that really swayed investors, kind of sent the stock a little bit lower. Musk also highlighted the unpredictability of chip supplies and the hurdles he expects in ramping production at two new factories in Austin and Berlin later this year. It was, though, the electric vehicle maker's first $1 billion quarter of net income. A favorite voice of ours to talk about Tesla is Ross Gerber. He's president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. He did talk all things Tesla, Carol, but we did get him to weigh in on the moves in Chinese stocks and Beijing intervention as well. Take a listen. I think one of the main things Tesla does differently is they make a lot of their own stuff. You know, it was like if something they're lacking, they'll just make it. So they can make chips, they can make parts, they can make seats. And so they're very adaptable to the environment that they're in. And they also have, I think, a superior positions with their supply chains because they tend to order very aggressively and long term. So there's sort of an advantage to keeping Tesla happy in the supply chain. This Bitcoin related impairment of $23 million seems right. like not a lot when they've got cash and cash equivalents of over $16 billion. But how should we as investors, how should we as Bloomberg Radio uh, listeners, how should we read that? Um, I would pay almost zero attention to the Bitcoin element of Tesla. I think it's a distraction from what their real success really is. Right now, Bitcoin's rallied back now to 40,000. So you can say that he's up on this Bitcoin now from when this was even reported. But because it's so volatile in the way it's accounted for as an in- intangible asset, these these it's sort of irrelevant, I think. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, Expects car deliveries to grow more than 50% this year. On track to build the Model Y in Austin, Berlin this year. Part supply has strong influence on 2021 deliveries. I'm just reading through, uh, Ross, some of uh, the headlines. Working to drive down costs, increase production rate. What's, What's important there? Well, this is really where Tesla gets interesting because if you've seen recently, they've really added a little bit to the price of the Model Y and the Model S. And, and, and so they're able to, that's basically a hundred percent margin increase versus what I thought was really offsetting an increase in cost. So I think what we're really seeing is Tesla hitting on all cylinders from a production level mm-hmm. and efficiency level. What about shifting the launch of the semi-truck program to 2022? I mean, this is a company in kind of the earlier days, right? We would often see delays and changes in terms right. of getting stuff out there. Uh, how important is that to the company going forward? And does a de- well, is a delay bothersome? I mean, it doesn't bother me because I expect it. Yeah. I, I think it's annoying because obviously the product is a transformative product in a very important market. You know, as an investor in my firm and now my new ETF, GK, we're very into this climate change trade, which is investing in things that are going to make our climate better. And the semi-truck is one of the more important products to really help climate because of the enormous pollution, enormous need for transportation across the country. So, so every day that that's, you know, delayed is in a way a cost to Tesla because the demand will be so huge for these vehicles. But the problem is they need the new cells to be working to really get the performance out of the semi-truck. And that's why it's delayed um, because they really need to get this, this new uh, cell production line up and stable uh, and that will really allow the truck to be just mind blowing. So, so it's annoying in one sense, but on the other sense, the ultimate result will be amazing. So it's just part of the Tesla experience. And you just, 
you know, chill and wait for it to happen, you know? <laughs> hey, listen, it will happen. I'm going through, too, I'm looking through our blog for what's going on in China specifically. What are you right. hearing? What are you seeing? What do we need to be smart about when it comes to what's expected to be and should be, right, a really important market uh, for this company? Right. It, it does make me worried that China is such a huge market for several of our positions, Apple and Tesla, for example, but I also think that this is more about power than hurting, let's say, U.S. companies for no reason. This is about Xi keeping control in China from the billionaire capitalists that have been so successful and keeping people in check more than, I think, hurting, let's say, a U.S. company that's providing a lot of benefits to China in the EV business and through the technology sharing that they're having. So I, I, I'm worried a little bit about Apple and Tesla in particular, mm-hmm. and some of the businesses we do in China, but but not so much so in that I would take any action from it, but we're watching it closely. But if you're in these Chinese companies, I mean, it's you got to move on. It's not a good situation. What if the Chinese market ultimately isn't as open for Tesla going forward? How does that fundamentally change the dynamics of a company that is now a $633 billion market cap company? Well, I think it would ultimately just hurt China because Tesla will sell their cars in Europe, the US, Latin America, India. If China wants to be a competitive market, they need to be in the EV game. And they're also in the EV game simply because of the weather and the the, the effects it's had on China, whether it be flooding or other issues that they're having. So China has a huge incentive to keep the EV market growing and to be a leader in this market. And so if they create issues for Tesla, that would actually hurt their ability to be leaders in this market. So I see it as the opposite. I think they're trying to stay real cozy with Tesla to learn as much as possible to, be, to, to dominate this technology and, and become a massive EV player. And China, EV companies are the best in the world behind Tesla. Yeah. All right. So that's a really, really good take on that. Go back to Chinese companies, U.S. investors. Do you think ultimately that's not going to be a place for them to be or not a smart place in your view? Well, we were debating, is this a buy or is this a sell, right? Yeah, because a right. lot of stocks got real cheap and we like to buy stocks when they get real hammered and everybody thinks the world's ending. Um, but I'm not a big fan of foreign investment in general because of the lack of visibility, especially in China, that firms like mine have. Like, I, I can go to Tesla's factory right now, and they'll show me all around just like they show you, but I can't go to a Chinese factory and have them show me around. Um, they won't do that in most cases. So I think that we've entered this point where the communist control of China is more important than promoting capitalism. Mm-hmm. and. And this shift that we've been seeing from Xi, whether it's aggressive approach to Hong Kong and and certainly Taiwan, um, it's almost a belligerence to the rest of the world's capitalist system. And and I think investing in China has a new risk. And also what really was the thing at my firm was the ESG side of it, Mm -hmm. that just basically owning these companies is, is just not right because the Chinese government is just, it's not the form of capitalism that we invest in. Right. And so I think investors need to assess 
whether or not they can make money here isn't the issue. It's do I want to be a part of it? That was Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, we take you to South America. A devastating and disturbing story in the magazine, a crisis for natural resources in the Amazon rainforest. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Okay, this may rightfully freak you out. It is about the last days of the rainforest. Yes, that rainforest, so crucial to the global environment, many species on Earth. I mean, it is so important to all of us living on Earth. Yeah, it is something that affects the entire planet, not just Brazil and South America. The story in the magazine is about how the Brazilian Amazon is approaching the point of no return, and the government there is fanning the flames. Here's more from Bloomberg senior editor for Latin America, Jessica Bryce, and Bloomberg Businessweek magazine editor, Joel Weber. This is a gut-wrenching story. I kind of can't think of something that has bigger global implications than um, losing the Amazon. And what Jessica's story shows is that it's actually, it's really nuanced. And I think that is one thing, if you spend some time with the story, you will come away with some of that nuance. And the story started as a as a data project and then became probably one of the most compelling stories um, I've ever published as the editor of Business Week. You know, the thing that I think it shows more than anything is that there is a official land grab policy that is happening in Brazil and it's allowing the rainforest to basically get turned into grassland where cattle can be raised which is about the worst 180 that we can do for the planet, <laughs> as you can imagine. So, so Jessica, walk us through um, where you started this project and, and what you learned along the way. Yeah, I started the project really looking at the data behind deforestation, trying to figure out, you know, we've been struggling with this issue for decades now, and why is it still something that we're, we're seeing? Why is, why is it not something that the world is able to, to stop? Why is not the Brazil government not stopping it? Um, so I started looking at the data of who's actually doing it, and it took me in directions that I had never really expected. I mean, it's, it is such a nuanced story. It is such a complicated story. And what it comes down to is, you know, the folks on the ground, uh, for decades, they've been told that deforestation is a good thing, that they need to deforest the land. And in fact, in some cases, um, they were, you know, handed plots, and if they didn't deforest the land, they risk losing those plots. And so that culture has really stuck in the Amazon and the folks there now, which a lot of them are incredibly poor. The government has, uh, keeps that policy alive because it helps pump this land, this cleared land, into industrial farming operations that feed the world. This is such a big part of it, right? Supporting the people who live in a country and area, right? And so there's, as you just explained, that on one hand, but at the same time, we're talking about the existence of the global population and protecting the rainforest. It's a policy that's not just from President Bolsonaro. It's been around for a while. It has been around for a while. Um, During the dictatorship, uh, the government really prioritized giving it to big landowners, big industry. Um, And then, so you had this population of people who'd been working the land for for generations. And they, um, and so when the democracy came about, uh, 
the government decided to give them small plots of land. So that was in the Constitution. What we saw is that two governments prior to Bolsonaro, they moved the needle forward. They said, okay, so we'll amnesty more recent deforestation, we'll amnesty bigger deforestation. Now what the government wants to do is sort of take that to like uh, just a very scary, uh, a very scary next step and say, okay, we're going to start amnestying more recent deforestation as recently as 2012. Bolsonaro did want to amnesty as recently as 2018, um, but we're not even going to check it. We're going to do it all by satellite. And mm. so it really opens the door to almost 16 million hectares of, of, of new Amazon land that could be amnestied, basically. This is Amazing. stolen public land that could be amnestied. Can you make the connection for people who live thousands of miles away from the Amazon about just why it is so important, not just for Brazil, but for our own health, because that was one of the most striking parts of the story for me. Right. So we're, we're reaching a point where the Amazon, which has always been considered sort of the lungs of the world, it's turning into savannah. It, it's, at, it, it's at risk of turning into savannah. And instead of, of cleaning the earth air, it's actually accelerating climate change. And in some cases where the burns are the worst, it's actually pumping more carbon dioxide into the air than it can absorb. <sighs> Um, now, if it turns into savanna, what happens? We lose 10,000 species are at risk. But also, the Amazon helps regulate the entire the weather patterns here in the in in South America. And South America produces a lot of food for the world. There's a combination of factors that are really sort of scary. Not only does it you know contribute to climate change, it con- it you know contributes to more pollution in the air, but it also changes our weather patterns in a region that makes a lot of food for the world. And so it is quite shocking what what we're looking at. And that's Bloomberg's Jessica Bryce and Bloomberg Businessweek magazine editor Joel Weber. Highly recommend you read the entire story. It's online on the Bloomberg and on newsstands. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, the pandemic's impact on the recording industry and moves to make it more diverse and inclusive, led by one of its most influential figures, Harvey Mason Jr. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Well, some research out last month, Tim, painted a pretty worrisome picture when it came to diversity in the music industry. The Annenberg Inclusion Initiative examined over 4,000 execs, found that only 20% were from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups, and even fewer as you move up the organizational ladder. It's among the many issues that have contributed to a call for change in the recording industry and at the organization which represents performers, songwriters, producers, engineers, and more, the Recording Academy, which is probably best known for overseeing the annual Grammy Award. For more, we talked with Harvey Mason Jr. He's CEO of the Recording Academy. He also gave us a sneak peek of the Aretha Franklin biopic. First up, though, more on what's going on at the Academy. And a couple of years ago, I really saw an opportunity to really level up what we were doing at the Academy. And I saw it being a timely issue, something that we had to take responsibility for. So I ran for chair on kind of a platform of change and improvement. And that was, I think, two and a half years ago. And then I was... Uh, put in as a CEO on an interim basis about 18 months ago. And at that point, we really started looking at everything we were doing, I, just, you know, pulling back the curtain. How can we be more reflective, more re- representative, more diverse, and more relevant? 
And there was a lot of things that needed to change at the academy. Uh, there's a lot of things we did really, really well that we also needed to talk about and amplify and share with our members and, and the general public and music consumers. But uh, we really looked at everything we're doing. We were also the tiny little thing called COVID had a lot of impact on what we were able to do. Uh, obviously it had a huge effect on our membership and our music community. We were some of the first people to be out of work and we'll definitely be some of the last to come back. So we've been really hyper-focused on trying to serve our members around the needs there. You took us there, the pandemic. Let's go there. Uh, the financial impact of the pandemic on the music industry, how would you quantify it? Um, no word there that we can use that we've created that can can show exactly the impact that it's had. It's been catastrophic. It's been critical. It's been something that no one's ever expected. I can tell you through our Music Cares organization, which is the, the part of the academy that gives back to music people who need help. Typically in the normal year, it'll be five, six million dollars of service needed. People who need help with rent or bills or medical care. This year we're well, uh, we're right around $30 million uh, in mm. services provided. So we've never seen anything like this. A huge event like Hurricane Katrina put people out of work for a period of time, 9-11 for a period of time, but nothing has had the impact that COVID has had on our industry. You know, Harvey, it's really interesting. I think there are times that people look at the music industry and they just assume everybody is really successful and makes a ton of money. I remember in college being part of a radio station about jazz performers and, and a lot of them were just barely getting by and not everybody in the music industry makes a ton of money no in fact just the opposite most people in the industry are making uh less than the medium income and, and mm -hmm. i think there are a the small percentage of people that are making you know hundreds of thousands of dollars but it's a tiny amount of people most of us are working day-to-day -day musicians or writers or producers or crew members or you know gaff riggers things like that so it is an organization with the Academy that represents the whole spectrum. Of course, some of our members get more visibility than others on the show, but mm -hmm. it is our responsibility to look out for our, our, all of our members. But even more importantly than that, the whole music community. And zooming out maybe a click further than that, it's our responsibility to utilize the power of music and to leverage our brand at the Academy and the Grammys to try and make change, try and improve things, try and bring people together, try and fight for things that are wrong and just make a difference. And that's really kind of well, where I hope we can go in the future. I mean, if there's one thing you could right now change for your industry, make it better, make it more inclusive, what would it be? Well, I think it starts with being more inclusive and being more diverse and hearing from all the, the right voices, make sure people have a voice uh, and are a seat at the table at, at every level, both on the creative side, on the executive side, and the decision-making side. And then also making sure that the income and the, and the payouts are equitable and fair uh, in regards to the creators and in partnership with the streaming companies and the labels and the publishing companies. There's a lot of money being generated by the consumption. We've never seen music consumed at the rate we're seeing it now, but there's not a lot of clarity on how that music gets or the money gets split out and how do we monetize this art that these people are creating. That's something that we need to figure out. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Harvey, and, and thanks for staying with us, is you guys and you specifically and your team focusing on keeping the music you know, community, want to make sure it is inclusive, representative of all kinds of individuals. Uh, and how did it get to a point, because you would have thought music creative, um, that it would be diverse and inclusive by its nature, and yet it wasn't. How did it get to be that way? Hard to predict, only because I haven't been here that long, Carol, but mm -hmm. I think some of it might But you understand the music industry. You've worked yeah. within it for a long time. No, totally. 
totally. And the music industry has a lot of diversity in its creative side, uh, not so much on the business side. So I think there is something to be said for uh, people being aware or just may not have understood or been cognizant of the fact that they could be involved in the academy. And, and maybe that holds true for some other parts of the business. I know for us, I think there was just we didn't amplify what we did as an academy. We didn't talk about all the other services. We just talked about the awards. So people just felt like, well, the, the academy may or may not be for me. I know I'm a creator, but I don't know if I should be involved in the academy side. And I think if you you know project that out, maybe the same thing held true for the industry, but it's really hard to predict. What about the rest of the music industry though, right? So many of your members and outlying companies and you know whether it's recording companies, labels and so on and so forth, you know, what more can they do? And, and I, I do this, I'm pushing you a little bit, but you know, We've done it with the sports industry and how they ultimately, during the crisis of the last year, where they're stepping up and providing stadiums for people to vote, like that was huge and was significant for the industry to take a step. What's what's that moment for you guys? Well, first off, Carol, I love you pushing me. I have no problem with it. I'm (laughs) pushing myself and I'm pushing everybody that we can at the Academy because there is, this is important. And I think music serves a really unique role, much like sports. People listen to creators or music people. People listen to athletes. So I think if we can start to do things the right way and continue in the direction we're headed, we can make a bigger impact on not just the music industry or not just the music community, but just you know our society at large. And that's the goal for us at the Academy is to really utilize the opportunity that we have, the influence that we have, and to really make a difference. And like I said, zoom out a little bit from just thinking so much about what can we do today for our Grammy Awards or what can we do Mm -hmm. here or there. All that is very important, very important, but it gives us the opportunity to do more. All right. And I love that you mentioned the Grammy Awards, because I think when we think about the Academy, that's what we so many people understand. I mean, that's the thing visually that we all relate to specifically, but it is such a visual medium, right? And so what you put out there, um, tell me about some of the conversations you're having about how you think about how you produce that show going forward. Well, we want it to be the most entertaining show we can. You know, last year we did something very drastically different because we couldn't have fans in the audience. And our creatives and artists were unsure, unsecure how they could be around each other. So we set up a format that gave them safety and comfort and confidence. Whether or not we are able to continue in that type of a format or we go to a new format, it will all really be dependent on COVID and the protocols and what we're allowed to do here in L.A. County and statewide and federally. But our hope is we can bring great musicians and creators and artists together and make a show that is not only entertaining, but healing and bringing people together and uniting people and showcasing how we all can work together and how different genders and races and sexual orientations can all join forces to accomplish something great. And that's, I think, the power of music. You mentioned creative types. You are a creative type. You've worked with Penn, produced songs for Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, Elton John, and of course, Aretha Franklin. You've got an amazing movie coming out in August. Um, tell me about this. And having seen Aretha Franklin live, there's there was nobody like her. Oh, man, nobody like her. Right? <laughs> she was incredible. I was so fortunate to get the chance to work with her for 13 years or so over the course of her career. And she was you know, very, very special to me, but just special to all of us in the industry. On, on August 13th, the Respect movie is coming out. Uh, it's about Aretha Franklin and her life. It's She's being played by Jennifer Hudson. It's in theaters only. 
which, you know, now is always mm-hmm. a conversation point. Yeah. And hopefully the COVID allows us to go to theaters August 13th. But I'm very proud of the movie. A lot of great music and also a very important story that most people don't know about Miss Franklin. And that were that was the trials and tribulations that she suffered going through early in her life to become, you know, the queen of soul or the iconic voice that she was. It's so important to tell those stories. And I think that is, again, something that we just assume somebody was popular or famous or successful, right? right? And and you just right. think it was easy. And that's not the right assumption, just quickly. Definitely not. And most people nowadays don't realize that. They see the TV shows where you sing and you get voted on, you're a millionaire, you know, and, and <laughs> they don't know that Aretha actually had a lot of hurdles and obstacles she had to overcome to become who she was she she was one of the all-time greatest voices in our in our history but yet she had not found her voice for the first six or seven records Mm. of her career so i think people will enjoy uh, this story of triumph and and what she has accomplished in her life that's harvey mason jr ceo of the recording academy and founder and ceo of harvey mason media that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Tim Stenovec. And I'm Carol Masser. Ahead in our next hour, how the Martin Guitar Company is continuing to make guitars after a pandemic and after nearly 200 years. Your husband has a Martin guitar, right? He does. It's one of my favorites. Love the acoustic. Also, disruption in swimsuits and more. Tim, your wife has a bathing suit, right? Uh, she does have one, yes. <laughs> do you have one, too? I do, too. Okay. This one from the co-founders of Somersault. It's a company that's attracted VC money from the likes of Founders Fund and Steve case. All of that ahead. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. The biggest online retailer's forecast misses estimates as the pandemic online bump fades. And yet, does it really matter? We've got some insights from the author of The Everything Store and Amazon Unbound. We're talking about our own Brad Stone. Plus, the president of C.F. Martin & Company. It's a family-owned guitar maker that's been in business for more than 180 years. Jackie Renner joins us in just a bit. And two women committed to disrupting the women's swimwear business. We'll hear from Lori Coulter and Reshma Chamberlain. They are the co-founders of the direct-to-consumer sustainable brand, Somersault. But first up this hour, this week's cover story. We talked about it earlier in the show. Mm. It was also a most read story on the Bloomberg this week, all about Beijing's crackdown on its big tech companies and how it's ushering in a new era and potentially a new model. Listen, you and I both love this story. It really explains so much of what's been going on, particularly this week, the last couple of weeks with China's increased oversight of their big tech companies. And this story really got into what's going on. Well, the story starts off in the Cayman Islands, and it's by Bloomberg News technology reporter Austin Carr, who joined us along with Business Week editor Joel Weber. Just up top, I I, I should note that I am in Los Angeles reporting, not in the Cayman Islands on a beach anymore. How I do we know yeah, that? It sounds like I, I, can't, I hear the surf in the background. I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> um, but I, I do agree. This is uh, one of the big stories uh, of the year that we're really eager to focus on when it comes to Silicon Valley versus China, because for so long they were sort of emulating the model that the U.S. had done with their tech industry. For every you know uh, version of Facebook, there was a version of that in China, or there 
is Baidu, the, 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 the Google of China, or Didi, the Uber of China. And until just, you know, about October or so, that model had just continued growing and growing, and they were becoming more global competitors. Uh, but what, with these recent crackdowns on Didi, on Alibaba, on the education industry, on Meituan, we're seeing a very, a, a lot of upheaval in that model, where China is basically saying to its entrepreneurs, no, this has got to stop. No more, uh, you know, freewheeling capitalism. We're going to rein you in a bit, and we're going to do it a lot faster than the U.S. regulators can do it in the U.S. And I think the big standout thing for me, and we can talk more about the new model for China, uh, but the big standout thing is that going into this, I assumed we'd feel hear a lot of negative reactions of the government intervention in China, and it was actually quite the opposite. We actually heard a lot of positive reactions, especially from the startup and VC community, that felt like this was going to level the playing field in the China tech scene in a way that won't happen in the, the, the U.S. tech scene for many years. Why is the Chinese government no longer taking a permissive approach, Austin, when it comes to big Chinese tech companies? You know, there's definitely a sense that these companies were getting too powerful. Um, Alibaba being the prime example where it was um, acting with a lot of monopolistic behavior, alleged monopolistic behavior towards some of the startups, forcing them on their platform, forcing smaller players to sell out, taking advantage of their data, and really uh, behaving in a way that was in the corporate interest, but not necessarily in China's national interest. And I think that's really where the big pivot is happening in China right now. When we think about antitrust cases in the U.S., that's often to protect the consumer, but in China, it's increasingly to protect national policy. And so when these companies were veering off track, not behaving in a way that was in the in China's national interest, that's when the government has stepped in and say, Alibaba or Tadidi or Meituan, that they have to behave differently. You know, reading this story, Austin, and, and just hearing you describe it like that, uh, I think some, some critics of U.S. tech companies could say, hey, wait a second, this is what we see U.S. tech companies doing to, to their smaller competition. Correct. I mean, we, we did hear that. I mean, one, one person had told me that, uh, uh, you know, China was able to rein in Alibaba within four months, whereas it's going to take U.S. regulators, you know, years and years, if not longer, to rein in a company like Facebook or Google uh, about their alleged, you know, privacy issues. Um, and so basically what we have to look at is what, what is the outcome of these two different approaches to regulation? Uh, on the one hand, uh, critics and observers believe that U.S. tech companies might uh, have a bit of more of an edge in the global scene. They will, Facebook, the FANG companies will continue to grow at a more global scale where China's model is now becoming increasingly China-centric and also less founder-centric. Uh, in other words, sort of the, the sort of heroes of the, the tech industry in Silicon Valley, like Alibaba co-founder Jack Ma, might not be as vocal or as present uh, as sort of their counterparts in the U.S., like Elon Musk will continue to be. Um, and so there's just a give and take there. On the, the one hand, China might have less global champions, but perhaps they, they that sort of reigning in the top players allows a new generation of startups to grow, whereas in the U.S., startups are finding it difficult to grow without being swallowed up by the bigger players. Austin, what have you not said that you needed to say? I have not said that I, I will be filing an expense report. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I, I better get to the Grand Caymans just to do some last-minute fact-checking. Okay. You know, it's interesting. I read your story, and I was thinking, okay, the EU is leading when it comes to climate change, regulatory uh, moves. I feel like China is now leading the way when it comes to big tech oversight. You know, what's the U.S. role in all of this, and what does it mean for U.S. big tech companies? I think the U.S 
U.S. is still figuring that out. I mean, we, we, we've seen so many hearings. We've seen sort of fines levied in the EU and the U.S. towards certain companies. But it has not played out as aggressively uh, in the U.S. as it has in, um, the, in, in China markets. That was Bloomberg News technology reporter Austin Carr, who joined us along with Business Week editor Joel Weber. I still think he was in the Cayman Islands. <laughs> he wishes. <laughs> he does. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, it wasn't just big tech in China on our radar this week. So, too, was U.S. big tech as Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon all reported quarterly results. It was a crazy week, Tim. It was a crazy week. And for the biggest online retailer, some disappointment in the results. Although perhaps we shouldn't see it that way, as Rowan Brad Stone, who has written two books on Amazon, provides perspective like he only can. He's always thinking long term with this company. I don't know if there's anyone apart from (laughs) Jeff Bezos who actually knows more about Amazon than Brad Stone. I so agree. All right, that's coming up next. And this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So as we mentioned earlier, it was a really big week for big tech earnings. That included results from Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. And there was some disappointment, Tim, with the overall results. For example, Amazon gave a lackluster sales forecast for the current period, suggesting the world's biggest online retailer's rapid growth through the pandemic that could be waning as people get back to old shopping habits. You know, Carol, go into these old-fashioned <laughs> brick-and-mortar stores. I remember them. I have to say, you and I talked about it during the week. I've gone to more stores than I have in a long, long time. Well, our go-to on Amazon, especially when it comes to the company's story, strategy, founder, and future, is Brad Stone. He's senior executive editor of Global Technology right here at Bloomberg. He's also the author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon. And his update to that just out this year, it's called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos. Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire, two fantastic books. Here's our chat with Brad just after Amazon reported earnings this week. Look, I, I've been covering Amazon for a long time. You know, there, there are always these, these uh, unexpected fluctuations, sometimes below expectations, sometimes above. You know, I, I read this as probably maybe a bit of an indicator that at least at, at one point the pandemic for Amazon was ebbing and customers had more choices, right? And they were mm-hmm. going back into stores. Um, I think the company increasingly thinks they'll be shopping elsewhere, or have other options. And so that's why the guidance for the third quarter is a little bit weak. Um, you know, AWS basically hit its target. So, you know, the most profitable and powerful part of Amazon's business is forging ahead. But yeah, they're a little light here on uh, on net sales. Um, they've got that massive distribution center that's basically been a cost during the pandemic, and they're building more fulfillment centers and distribution hubs. So, you know, they missed a little bit, and there's a little bit of a course correction. But the one thing that I've learned covering Amazon is that these things happen in the moment, and then by the end of the week, everybody forgets about them. Because look, <laughs> this company is growing much faster than retail overall. It's still selling hundreds of billions of stuff, Brad. I mean, the numbers, I always feel <laughs> like there's a, there's a couple of companies like an Apple or an Amazon that their numbers are just off the charts. I mean, 27% growth for a, you know, a, a company that um, is valued at 1.7 or maybe $1.8 trillion. It's still mm-hmm. extraordinary. But that other category where the ad revenue is tucked is, you know, they've they've now 25 years into the company's existence are minting yet another powerful revenue stream. So it'll be interesting to see 
you know, so many things, including how that develops, uh, what the FTC does with the proposed MGM merger, um, and then how Andy Jassy's leadership style diverges from Jeff Bezos's. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What is the task that he has out ahead of him now to to continue with what Jeff Bezos did for, for more than 25 years at Amazon? Yeah, I, I would put it into three buckets. Um, one is continuing uh, to invent, to, to, to uh, nurture a culture of inventiveness. You know, in my two books, and particularly in Amazon Unbound, as I, as I went and kind of did the archaeology on projects like Alexa or the Amazon Go store, it always starts with Bezos, an, an hmm. idea from Bezos, uh, Bezos pushing a team. And, you know, it, Jeff isn't going away, but he's going to be arguably less involved. So how does Jassy continue to make Amazon an inventive company without the founder and, you know, chief nerd in the halls the whole time? <laughs> uh, the second thing is corporate culture, right? It's like, you know, we can argue whether Amazon needs to fix it, but certainly it needs to evolve it. You know, they have more than a million employees. Lots of war war warehouse workers feel trodden upon. You've got unionization efforts at the door. So he's got he's to create a new contract with employees. And then the third thing, really quickly, is, is just the antitrust scrutiny, mm. right? And Jassy will present a kind of humbler target, I think, than Jeff Bezos, the richest guy in the world, but contending with basically attacks on all fronts, from state AGs to the FTC and DOJ to the European Union, and a kind of growing bipartisan sense that the big tech companies have too much power and it needs to be curtailed. Brad, Amazon's web services, AWS, is just a, a massive business. And for years, it's allowed Amazon to invest in, in other things, those things like Alexa. Um, what is the, the, the next driver of profit at Amazon? Is there another AWS that they're working on? Is, is Alexa, you write about so much in your, in your most recent book, is that starting to show results, at least on the top line? Yeah. Is Alexa starting to show results? I mean, I think the answer to that is we kind of don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, it's opaque, right? The financial statements are opaque. Um, Amazon, uh, Alexa is so tied in with other parts of the business. Um, uh, probably not, I would say. I mean, huh. maybe it's close to break even. But, okay. but you know, one, one thing that you mentioned is like AWS it is quite profitable, but it by and large goes to build more AWS, right? They're building data centers around the world and you know trying to expand into new services, making big investments in AI. I think that the, the, the powerful kind of profit machine here is advertising, and those dollars are being used to, to buy, uh, to license more TV shows and movies, to create more, to buy MGM. And then there's lots of other things that we frankly don't know about. I mean, we do know that they've got a satellite initiative called Project Kuiper that'll compete with Starlink, a bunch of things in healthcare, probably a bunch of things in the device business like uh, a, a home robot they've been working on for a couple of years. Uh, but we don't quite know what the big next hit will be yet. What will be the role, I guess is what I want to get to, is of Jeff Bezos in this company? Obviously, it's his baby. And even though he's stepped back and there's a new, officially a new CEO, does he still kind of poke around? Does he still kind of get involved in things? And will that be problematic to Jassy? Or is that necessary to kind of keep Amazon being innovative in some ways? So, Carol, my perspective on this has changed a little bit. I, oh, I was okay. in the wonderful town of Van Horn, Texas last week <laughs> to see... Uh, Bezos blast off in the sky <laughs> atop know. his, um, let's just say, imaginatively shaped rocket. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that he said wow. in that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> euphemisms. One of the things he said. We don't in need that, Freud here. I'm just gonna say. Anyway, this is family radio. <laughs> I know. Uh, one of the things he said in that press conference 
is that he was going to spend the majority of his time on Blue Origin, a space company, and on the Bezos Earth Foundation. And it really made me think that he is giving Jassy the running room to go operate on his own, and that maybe he's going to minimize his time. He's a board member, he's the chairman of the board, but I don't expect him to really be patrolling the hallways of Amazon anymore. So I think, you know, that's going to be probably in, in some ways a blessing for Jassy. He gets to put his own stamp at the company. Uh, but, you know, also a little bit of a curse because obviously a lot of the success of Amazon over the past 25 years derives from Bezos's relentlessness and the, the halo of the founder that he has at the company and how he manages to push it forward. That's Brad Stone, Senior Executive Editor of Global Technology at Bloomberg. Brad's also the author of The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos in the Age of Amazon. And his update to that just came out a few months ago. It's called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, getting through the pandemic and finding innovation at a nearly 200-year-old company that's been putting guitars in the hands of Eric Clapton, Willie Nelson, and my husband and many more. <laughs> you could, I mean, he's pretty much on par with those guys, right? He wishes. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Well, earlier this year, you might recall back in January, we caught up with a member of the sixth generation of the Martin family, Chris Martin. We're talking, of course, about the Martin family behind the Martin Guitar Company, which has been making guitars, Tim, for nearly two centuries. And it's a family business that's still run by the family. This time around, you checked in with Jackie Renner, who's president of CF Martin and Company, to talk all about life during the pandemic, finding workers and innovation in the guitar industry. During the pandemic, people found solace in learning to play new musical instruments, and a younger generation really started to embrace the instrument. So we've been expanding, we've been supplying, and it's, uh, it's, we hope it's going gonna, it's gonna to last for a good number of years. Right now, we're so thrilled that so many people want to get engaged with music. You said the word supplying, which we have been nutty about, like supply chains. Your supply chain, do you have all the woods, the, the, the stuff that you need to make guitars? So woods, we we keep strategic inventories of our woods That's what I because thought. they're precious, and you got to be you know you really yeah. have to think long and hard about the forest. When you get to some of the other uh, parts and pieces that go into guitars, um, yeah, we're hit, we're suffering from the same supply chain challenges that I've been listening to on the radio mm-hmm. um, for the last several months, and there's. We really think that's going to continue for a long time, not only because of the supply chain disruptions globally, but also because of the ever-increasing demand for guitar parts throughout the industry around the world. Well, it's interesting. What about workers? Remind everybody, a lot of guitars, I mean, I know you guys, I think increasingly some is automated, right? And But tell me how that works and whether or not your need for workers, whether it's being met or, or if you're having to pay up to get them. So first of all, we have two factories. We have mm-hmm. one in Mexico and we have the original factory in Nazareth, Pennsylvania, which has obviously been modernized over the last couple hundred years. Right. Now, the we do automate things where it improves the quality and the outcome of the guitars, uh, things that you couldn't do if you're just you're building a guitar from hand. But craftsmanship and hand building is still important in both of our factories. So with the increased demand, we have, we have added a uh, second shift in Nazareth. We've always had a second shift in Navajoa, and we continue to hire. It is challenging mm. to 
get people to come into a manufacturing environment, but because of who we are and the legacy we have in the guitar industry, the people that have a passion for music and want to get involved in Martin Guitar do come and work at our factory. So we continue, we continue to staff up in both factories. All right, continue to staff up. Do you have to pay more to get them? We have shortened the probationary um, pay piece, but not really. So then, yes. so then, in other words, the workers you want, you can get without having to, you know the stories, um, Jackie, that are out there of even whether it's fast food chains or restaurants or, you know, obviously the, you know, financial sector, we talk a lot about investment banking bonuses and things like that. But even in some of the service jobs where people are paying up and offering bonuses and other perks and benefits, you don't have to do any of that to get workers? So what we do is at Martin Guitar, you come and you join a family. We are not the kind of company that will hire when we're going up and fire when we're going down. When we went through a downturn in the guitar industry in 2016, 2017, we all went on shared work. We all hung in together. And that, that's a really, really important part of being part of the Martin Guitar family. In addition to that, our company has profit sharing and has had profit sharing for over 30 years. So when the industry is doing good and we have a lot of demand, we are competitive in our pay and we're very good about our uh, benefits for our employees and it's a stable place to work. So people will, will decide one, one or the other. I mean, warehouse, you can get warehouse work and you might get it at a couple dollars more an hour, but when the business stops, turns down, it's gone. What has changed in your thinking as a leader, how you manage, and maybe how you approach your business going forward? For me, Carol, what's come to the fore is the absolute importance of being agile, being able to adapt, and be willing to test. And if you think about Martin Guitar being an almost 200-year-old company, full of tradition and the ways we've always done things, mm -hmm. the pandemic actually gave us an opportunity to take those shackles off and say, what could we really do better? So there were more leaders within our organization that organically sprung up, more new skills that people embraced much more readily than they would have pre-pandemic. And our challenge now and our opportunity now is really to continue to embrace that and to continue to have a curious mentality for improvement and evolution inside the company and with our customers. That's Jackie Renner, president of CF Martin & Company. All right, you don't play guitar, but any instruments? Uh, no I piano, tried. no nothing? I, I took lessons when I was a kid uh, for piano. I love to play in piano. I just oh. It just never stuck. Okay. Yeah, I tried guitar though, Carol. Yeah, and you gave up? Yeah, I gave up. I was in band in middle school. Everybody was in <laughs> band in middle school. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, swimsuits for women of all shapes and sizes manufactured with a commitment to sustainability. The co-founders of the direct-to-consumer brand Somersault join us next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right, recently I got in the mail a somersault catalog. They're definitely doing swimsuits differently, Tim. It's not just, though, about swimsuits. They are building a lifestyle brand like a lot of other companies, and lifestyle products now account for over 35% of their business. Well, that's according to the company's co-founders, who also say the business saw 100% year-over-year growth. For more, we talked to Lori Coulter and Reshma Chamberlain, co-founders of the direct-to-consumer brand Somersault. Like everyone else, the past year has been an you know, absolute wild ride, but we're really fortunate to be in a space 
where the consumer has responded. We are, you know, met her when, where, and how she wanted to be spoken to with, with truly an exceptional product. And it's, it's, you know, in the end, it's been a fantastic year for Somersault, but not without um, its challenges. For well, sure. absolutely. And, and, you know, I was looking at some, some stats, the global swimwear market. I mean, and that's probably I think taking everybody into account is something like 18, 19 billion dollars. It's a lot. Reshma, come on in on this. You guys are doing it differently. Tell us about your approach. It's all about the customer for us. We always put our first swimwear had been done in the most antiquated way for generations and decades, right? No one was thinking about what women really wanted. We wanted swimwear that was functional, comfortable, sexy on our own terms. At Somersault, we used 10,000 women's body scans and 1.5 million measurements to really define our fit. And then we want to speak to her in a way that she wants to be spoken to. We want to see ourselves reflected in the marketing that tells us what we should wear or give us ideas. And so we recently launched our Everybody's a Summer Salt Body campaign that really showcases the incredible diversity that our customer represents. And in the end, we do it all for her and are inspired by her. Well, and it's interesting, Lori. I mean, you've been in the swimsuit business, you know, you, uh, before. You understand it. You've seen different cycles. Um, both of you understand it. I mean, I <laughs> I was thinking about preparing for this. It's all about fit fabric. Uh Everybody who's ever gone bathing suit shopping, uh, swimsuit shopping, it can be an incredibly frustrating event because not, you know, typically it's not always for all kinds of body sizes. Your approach is, and having looked at your catalog, I was kind of blown away. You really embrace everyone who's out there. So, so really our goal all along has been to inspire joy in the lives of our consumer. And, and if you think back how, to how we all felt at the beach as children, it was really about engaging with life, fully having fun. And, and a swimsuit should be fun. And it, it really had be done, been done in this antiquated way that Rashma referenced, over-sexualized and dated by the way that doesn't look very modern on social media in the way that many uh, women are finding brands today. And so there was just such a huge white space for us to go out and present um, our product in a modern way that really resonated with consumers. And, and we're really grateful to see you know, just how much the brand has taken off. And, and by the way, we're doing it in the right way, you know, a, across the board from an environmentally friendly approach to the way we're presenting a diverse set of women, you know, in every way. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about, I mean, you're using recycled uh, or recyclable materials. I mean, I've been talking to chief sustainability officers at Walmart, at Cisco, at a lot of different places. I mean, this is increasingly a part of the DNA of companies. Um, Reshma, you are the chief brand officer. I mean, how much does your consumer care about not only great fit and function, um, and looking good, but how much in terms of what the company stands for and how they make the product? How important is that? Well, eco-friendliness and sustainability, we believe are table stakes, but we also believe in um, working towards a not perfectionist approach, if that makes sense. A lot of people have, you know, big bars that they cannot reach, and then the consumers can kind of sniff out inauthenticity. At Somersault, it's all about being incredibly honest with our consumers, saying, hey, give us suggestions to do better here. Uh, we're asking the right questions to all our vendors. We're focusing on sustainability and eco-friendliness and sharing kind of the true nature of where we are in our journey with our consumer. It's really not about perfectionism. And this is truly a unique approach at Somersault. 
whether that's about inclusivity, whether that's about sustainability, it's a truly human approach Mm -hmm. because any company that says that they're perfect at this is not really being authentic. And we really believe in being honest and truthful with our consumer as we kind of navigate this journey together. But it truly is table stakes as companies begin to kind of become the next generation defining businesses. Lori, it's Bloomberg. We like to know about a company's velocity. Give me an idea. You started uh, back in 2017, May of 2017. So here you are, what, four years in. Tell me about the growth in the business that you've been seeing. Well, it's been an an absolute rocket ship and a a pleasure just to be part of something that's so much bigger than any of us are individually. But we've seen that rapid growth that puts us in the top 1% of venture capital that consumer-facing startups you know, worldwide, uh, which is just phenomenal. And we you know, continue to experience 100% year-over-year growth through 2020, through the COVID year. It was just unbelievable and and are seeing that kind of same accelerated pace um, throughout 2021. So, so Richmond, does it stay digital? Are stores likely at some point? Well, it's all about giving our customers unique experiences. So when we think about retail versus digital, it's all about new and unique ways in which our customer can interact with our brand. So when we think about retail, we really think about truly experiential retail, where we can provide something more than just commerce, where we can provide placemaking, community building, and creating a true experience for our community to connect with each other and with our brand. So when we think about retail, we're really thinking about creating something extremely extremely new, fun, and a concept where we can blend hospitality and retail. What does that mean? (laughs) Does that mean stores (laughs) eventually down the road? Yes, it absolutely means stores down the road. It's really interesting to think about D2C 1.0 and 2.0 brands that have to build stores to acquire customers. For us, we've really had an incredible, thoughtful customer acquisition, incredible organic growth. So when we think about retail, it's going to be about placemaking, and we're really excited to take that next step. What's the best way to do that? And Lori, maybe come on in on this. Is it to do it as standalone, your own own stores? Or is it to do it as shops within major retailers or department stores or a little bit of both? Um, I I think we're committed to the the vertical retail um, path. So that would be standalone stores uh, for the most part. And again, it's about that one-to-one relationship with our consumer Mm -hmm. uh, moving forward. And and as Rashma mentioned, creating that place where she experiences somersault uh, as a complete lifestyle. And so we're really excited to take it to the next level um, as we think about, you know, the next 12 to 18 months. Well, Laura, what is that next level? Because I mentioned, you know, swim, sw- you know, you're a swim um, wear brand, but you really are looking to do it. And you did during the pandemic, you moved into pajamas, like, you know, things that people were needed at home at that point, and you pivoted pretty quickly. So, so what's interesting is we had already entered uh, many of the, the apparel categories um, that accelerated through COVID. So we mm-hmm. were fortunate to already be in pajamas, cozy, comfy loungewear, athleisure, as well as, as everything cozy cashmere. And what's what's interesting is that sometimes people like to refer to it as a pivot, but we were actually already in those categories and were able to build it out um, due to our supply chain speed really rapidly. And um, certainly, you know, a, a, a over 35% of our revenue um, comes already from apparel. And so as we continue to build out new categories, that, that percentage uh, continues to climb, which is you know, phenomenal. Where, where do you see it all going, um, Reshma? Is it eventually an IPO or how do you guys continue to you know, provide the momentum, provide the capital? Can you continue to do it in the private markets? Well, for us, it's 
really about building the next generation defining brand and really kind of marching to creating that brand that people have in every corner of our wardrobe. Um, for us, it's not about, you know, Lori and I built two businesses before and we mm-hmm. never set out to do something small. For us, it was really creating a brand that people in my home country of India can recognize and uh, in the smallest towns in Missouri know about Somersault. So for us, it's about infiltrating essentially every wardrobe in America and the world. And that's what we're here to do. Right. And this is, I mean, this, everything that you're doing, um, Lori, is on a global level, correct? Um, yes, we are selling globally, although on uh, a little secret, watch what we have coming in the next uh, few months. So. From that perspective. (laughs) It sounds like more is coming. (laughs) Hey, one thing I wanted to ask both of you, it's something that we talk about a lot on Bloomberg and certainly within the venture capital world about, you know, the lack of women in senior VC positions, the lack of capital often for women-led or women-created businesses. Um, Lori, what's been your experience? Well, I think what's fascinating and most people don't realize is that only 3% of venture capital dollars go Right. women founders. Right. And, you know, certainly even less is going to founders in the Midwest. So we're really proud of the fact that we've been able to break through. And I, and I think what investors need to understand is that um, women founders that are breaking through and getting to the level that, that we're at with Somersault from a traction perspective, these are, these are truly breakout companies, not only from a revenue perspective, but also from, you know, just the, just the, the drive to break through and talk to the, you know, hundreds of investors it takes to really to circle that dollars. Now, what, what's interesting now is that Somersault receives, you know, almost an endless number of inbounds in regards to investors looking, you know, to fund the next level of growth for Somersault. So from that perspective, uh, we've really reached the threshold. But, it, you know, we believe it's our job as women founders to really forge the path for those that are coming from, from behind us and to really help um, draw attention to the fact that this 3% number has got to change. That was Lori Coulter and Reshma Chamberlain, co-founders of the direct-to-consumer brand Somersault. See, we promised we would end up with some lighthearted stuff. Yeah. After well, what felt like a little bit of a dark it's a, week. It's been a heavy week. Yeah, it absolutely has. All right, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stanovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. Definitely join us. You can also watch us on our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week, it is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me at Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. He will not be playing guitar, nor will he be wearing a bathing suit. I promise. (laughs) Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.